Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. You're fired. 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 And now you can say you're fired. Hillary, you're fired. I was wondering what you would say to President Obama. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Trump dropping some pink slips today, or at least, well, at least a couple of them. You're fired, uh, Rex Tillerson. That's how that went down. Not surprising to me at all. Uh, although I'm not an I'm not in the anti Tillerson camp. I thought that he was a pretty he seemed pretty confident to me, and he certainly would be sitting uh, seating at the seated at the adults table uh, within the administration. He's guy a guy with considerable experience, but he's out as you know. I'm sure you've heard some folks talking about today. We'll we'll dig into that a bit. You have the uh, they have Gina Haspel nominated as the CIA's first female director. So you're going to have the first female director of the CIA, assuming that all goes through. And Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, is going to head over to the State Department to run things at Foggy Bottom. If they thought that things were a little rocky with Rex in charge, who, as I have said, does remind me of the old weathered, tough Texan sheriff in pretty much every Western I've ever seen. Uh, if they thought that Rex was rough, just wait till they get a l- load of Pompeo. And then there's some other guy who was, uh, oh, John McEntee, the former White House assistant. He was somebody who was with Trump a lot. He's one of these guys who, if you're not covering the White House, I feel like it doesn't really get all that much, all that much attention, or he doesn't get all that much attention. But he's out for... Security clearance reasons, but he's getting a lot of attention now. I will say this. I think that John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, finally decided that, you know, you know how we deal with all the all the riffraff in the White House and get everyone to fall in line? No more passes on security clearance stuff because there's no, oh, but I know so-and-so and I'm friends with so-and-so way around that stuff, really. Uh, unless you are the president, unless you're you are the elected official, because then the premise becomes the people have given you their trust and you get access to classified. There's no there's no end runs or shortcuts on those investigations for administration officials. And I, I think that Kelly did the right thing by saying enough is enough. And if you, if you can't get clearance, you shouldn't be around classified material and you shouldn't be in positions of such trust. And so he's just cleaning it out a bit. Look, I think. I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here with uh, where I wanted to go because I was hoping to switch into the talk at the wall, which we're going to do in a second. But I think this is actually an upgrade for the administration, at least on the Secretary of State side. You need someone aligned with you. Pompeo's aligned with Trump. You need someone who's going to fight for you and fight for your agenda. That's Pompeo. You know, Rex, good guy, smart guy, 
not on board for some important stuff, not on board for Iran, different on Paris Climate uh, Accord, and doesn't look like he was on board with North Korea or tariffs either. So how are you going to be the president's secretary of state if you're not really if you're not really going to be the person that believes in these policies, uh, believes in what the president's trying to accomplish? But I, I want to take a step back from that for a second. Everyone gets all excited about talking about personnel. We've got some other news to hit on, including the Pennsylvania congressional race between Lamb and Saccone. Why is it? Shouldn't it be? You're a you're basically a Philly guy. Saccone, right? I mean, why do they? That's the Italian. It should be Saccone, but they call it Saccone. I never know. You know, man, it's uh, you you got to. I, I feel like I say Italian names wrong these days because did you Americanize? Did you keep it? like a lot of us Irish folks, by the way, you'll notice I'm wearing green today. You're on radio at home, folks, so you don't know this, but I'm wearing green. That's right. Luck of the Irish. And we we got rid of the O's in front of most of our names. Well, not everybody, like O'Reilly Factor. But I'm pretty sure at one point I was, I come from O'Hickey's. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I should check on that one before I say that one aloud, but I think so. Nonetheless, Saccone versus Lamb. I just did it. Saccone versus Lamb. Uh, that's going to be a race where... Tonight it'll be decided as we are, or the early results will come in as we're on air. I don't think I don't think we're going to be able to tell you who wins tonight. Although we'll see if for some reason it was uh, a landslide one way or the other, which would be completely contra the polling that we've seen. Uh, we'll let you know. So, ooh, Biden traveled to Pennsylvania to support Connor Lamb. Democrats are really they're trying to make a thing of this one. It's all for the narrative, folks. You got to remember it's one congressional seat, and there's a lot of. Members of Congress running around, which is important for you to remember because you can feel a little less terrified for our future when you hear what some of those bozos in Congress have to say. You're like, well, at least there's a lot of them. No one member of Congress really has that much power. I mean, Speaker of the House, there are some roles that have a little bit of an elevated profile. But anyway, we got that Pennsylvania race and we will we'll see what we can tell you about that. Selena Zito will be joining later to discuss she is a former columnist for the Pittsburgh Tribune. I mean, she knows this area backwards and forwards, so she'll be uh, really insightful on it. And uh, we also have Fred Flights joining, like me, a former CIA analyst. My, my, my brother from Langley, Fred Flights, will be joining to talk about North Korea and uh, his sense of that. Not much new news on North Korea today, so we're, we're going to get into the analysis of it with Fred uh, later on, but I don't have anything breaking on it. So with all that, I'm going to return to the issue of the personnel changes probably later on in the hour because I wanted to move, although I, I had to start with it so we could play the you're fired clips. And it is funny now to me, at least, that every time that you have one of these departures that is forced, uh, the president is in a position where we can all remember that he was, in fact, the guy most famous for saying you fired. I know people say you're fired, but I like saying it that way. Little, little queens brashness little little new york style you fired uh that's how we do it here so with all that we can get into the wall you want to talk policy you want to talk what's going to change the game and change the discussion trump was out in california today pretty sure there was like a two hundred fifty thousand dollar person fundraiser too you know as one does but he was checking out the wall literally pieces of what would be the future wall. And he's also taken on the sanctuary city policies of California specifically. California has become the front line of the fight against illegal immigration because California does. This is what's fundamental to this discussion. 
the state of California does not see illegal immigration as a problem. It sees it as a reality to be managed and to even be uh, exploited as necessary and as is helpful to Democrats and statists. But they don't see it as a problem that needs to stop. They are encouraging it. We don't have in California, and this is true in some other states, too, but it's most true in California. We don't have a, a situation where the federal government and the state government differ on how best to achieve the same ends, which in this case would be stopping illegal immigration and enforcing immigration laws when it comes to illegals. No, the state government of California and the federal government is at a, an impasse. They want fundamentally different things. They are working at cross purposes. They are against each other on this. And that's why this is so politically combustible. It's not like they're saying, well, we want this and you want this, but we're trying to do it in different ways. We want to slow down, stop and prohibit illegal immigration. And they want to continue it and just manage it. They see it as something to be managed. I'm not even sure you could say it's a problem to be managed. They they encourage they think illegals are necessary for the economy, necessary for the votes, necessary for the future of the state of California. At least that's what the elected. I know a lot of you in California are like, Buck, that's not what I think. But that is what the Democrat Party and the left in California have signed on for. And that's why Trump out at the wall today was so important. Like, for example, when he said this. You don't have a wall system. You're going to have we're not going to have a country. There's a lot of problems in Mexico. They have a lot of problems over there. And they have the cartels, and the cartels, we're fighting the cartels, and we're fighting them hard. Nobody ever fought them like we fought them. I mean, we fight them hard. But the fact is, if you don't have a wall system, it would be bedlam, I imagine. It's very hard to control with just personnel, sir. It's a combination of all of them. So we're looking at the walls where you have some three, uh, really some see-through capability. If you don't have some see-through, it's a problem. So we'll take a look up here. President is saying you need a wall. Isn't it noteworthy that as he's out in California and San Diego, he is, in fact, in a place that has a wall and that has dramatically improved the ability of Border Patrol to do their jobs. It has made it easier for Border Patrol to secure the San Diego sector of the wall. No one's saying it's perfect, but no security measure is perfect. There is no such thing. People say, oh, well, they'll get a they'll get a ladder or they'll dig a tunnel. Well, yeah, but that doesn't stop anyone else from building walls for any number of reasons. It's not supposed to be a cure all. It is supposed to be an impediment. And that is obviously what a wall is all about. You know, it doesn't even get much attention right now. But the most by a recent statistical analysis, I forget who did it. So I don't want to throw that out on the air, but we'll figure it out. The most dangerous city in the world per capita right now for murders is it, it was Juarez for a little while. And I think then it moved down into Central America and, and now, you know, Caracas and Venezuela is definitely trying to get to the top spot. Uh, but the most dangerous city in the world as of last month per capita was Cabo. Those of you who are familiar with the geography know that Cabo is on the tip of the Baja Peninsula. And Los Cabos, the uh, the cities that are there, 
used to be and still are actually, I think, a pretty popular tourist destination, which is amazing. I checked it out. I was just curious. What's it like if you try to go to Los Cabos now? Are there? Yeah, there's still $800 a night hotel rooms there, and people are still going, I suppose. But they have the highest murder rate per capita of any city in the world. Why is that, you say? Well, because of the cartels. Because the Sinaloa cartel and some of these other cartels, the uh, Nuevo Generation cartel, um, Nuevo Jalisco Generation cartel, and some of these others are all fighting it out for supremacy. But the worst part of the border right now for crossings is not the San Diego sector, despite the fact that Baja, the peninsula, which I know is very long, but is home to some really nasty cartel violence. No, no, it's it's in other places along the border. You know, they've even this was people don't see nearly enough of uh, of this reporting. Acapulco, which is a, a internationally known beach resort. I believe has had to deploy the military in Mexico to its beaches, not even to protect tourists, just to protect locals who want to go to the beach. They have uh, Marines, Mexican Marines, who have to go to the beach so that people are able to go without fear of being shot or kidnapped. That is right across our border, folks, that kind of violence. And, you know, when you start to look at what we could do to make things easier for us and easier for our Mexican counterparts. You know, that's a part of this, too. I actually want a prosperous Mexico. I want the cartels to be up against it. I want it to be much less appealing for people to break our laws because it is much more appealing for Mexicans and Central Americans to stay and build prosperity in their own countries. Right. I mean, that that's what I think we could all say we we would like that. And making it a more secure border, building this border wall Helping our Border Patrol and our Mexican counterparts is all a part of that. As long as you have cartels that have bankrolls that will will make corruption widespread within the Mexican government and Mexican security forces, and as long as the cartels are able to fight over billions of dollars, you're not going to have a secure, stable Mexico, and you're going to have problems that spill over into our own country, which Trump is also taking note of. And I mentioned to you yesterday with MS-13. We got more on the border we got to talk about here. As you can tell, I find this to be an incredibly important issue. I think it's important for the future of this country. And I think that Trump drew a line in the sand today. You could say he put the first brick up in the wall by making it quite clear. He's not backing off this one. A lot of the haters, the underminers, uh, the detractors, from Trump have been saying, you're not going to get this wall. He, it's a lie. He's clowning you. Oh, yeah? There's no way he can walk back from it now. He's got to do everything he can to get that wall, and I think he's going to. This is the guy who agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un despite all the conventional wisdom against it, right? I think you're also seeing the president today who's going to be the one who starts getting that wall built, and that will be it will be a game changer. It was a game changer for Israel. And, oh, guess what? It's been a game changer at the San Diego sector of the U.S.-Mexico border. So we have proof already. If it wasn't going to work, the left wouldn't hate it so much. All right, all right, I'm fired up. I know. We'll be back with much more on this. Stay with me. Both countries recognize the need to stem the cross-border flow of illegal weapons, drugs, people and cash. I have a great relationship with the president of Mexico, a wonderful guy, Enrique. 
terrific guy. We're working. We're trying to work things out. We'll see whether or not it happens. I don't know that it's going to happen. He's a very good negotiator. He loves the people of Mexico, and he's working very hard. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I like how even Trump, with all of his optimism and salesmanship, is like, I mean, it might happen. Like, maybe it won't happen, but usually he's like, oh, we're going to get it done. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great, you know? And that's part of his his charm and his power, quite honestly. But on this one, he's like, I don't know if Mexico is going to be, like, all on board for this. Not sure I could not sure I could promise that, but I can promise a wall, and he certainly is promising a wall. By the way, uh, producer producer Mike actually has some some numbers for me. So what so what I said about the cities, what was true here? The yeah, you're right. Um, Los Cabos was ranked one. Uh, Caracas is two, and Acapulco comes in third. Damn! Look, at, I, I did not even know that, and those three cities came up in my discussion because that is how I roll. So there you go. Yeah, no, ter- the violence in Venezuela is pretty self-explanatory if you know what's going on with the government. But uh, Acapulco, I think it's mostly because the, I believe the Sinaloa cartel, which is really the oldest, is fighting a turf battle with the uh, Nuevo uh, Jalisco or Jalisco Nuevo Generation uh, cartel, and which is ultra. They're, I mean, they're both ultra violent, but they're they're fighting it out in, in Acapulco, and and then yeah, Los Cabos. But people still go there. Because I still, if you go on, if you go on ho- like Hotels.com right now and you look up places in Cabo, they're like all inclusive, $1,200 a night for Momcation. Yay, Momcation Cabo. No, moms, do not Momcation Cabo. No, no Manny Petties on the beach in Cabo. Stay there. Yeah, wait, wait, what? It's a murdercation. Yeah, bad things going on there. Bad things going on there. You do not want to be anywhere near that. So, nonetheless. Uh, we we got to talk more about Trump and this policy of fighting. So we know the wall is important. He promised the wall. And also, the other side was saying you'll never get it. He is threatening to veto the next funding bill if there is not funding for a wall. This is you know, with Congress. Funding for a wall, next budget bill. And also, sanctuary cities get defunded unless they stop their anti-rule-of-law shenanigans, unless they stop their lawlessness. What's that going to look like? What's that going to mean? You can see we're, we're heavy on immigration this hour. We'll talk more about White House personnel and some other stuff. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. California sanctuary policies put the entire nation at risk. They're the best friend of the criminal. The smugglers, the traffickers, the gang members, they're all taking refuge. These policies release dangerous criminal offenders to prey on innocent people and nullify the federal law. They're threatening the security and the safety of the people of our country. The president is going after sanctuary cities, too. Uh, The promise here is that if they don't fall in line and start supporting federal law and stop supporting lawlessness, they're going to stop getting some federal grant money that's going to really sting some of these locales. What's the point of the federal government having grant money to give or not give if states and cities get it without compliance to what the federal government is requesting? Right? Then it's not a grant. Then it's just a demand. Then it's a, 
an expectation. And what was it? Uh, he talked about it later today as well. You know, Trump spoke to a group of Marines and mentioned sanctuary cities to them, too. My administration is confronting sanctuary city policies that nullify federal law, violate our Constitution, and threaten the safety and security of our nation. They shield criminals. We can't do that. And that is why we are asking Congress to ensure that no federal funds subsidize this dangerous and unlawful behavior. We want to protect you, and we want to protect all of our families. We want to protect our nation. There is no other area of criminal law of which I am aware, at least, that has cities, elected officials, even law enforcement, law enforcement officials, too, who actively subvert criminal law. There's there's no other area that I'm that I'm aware of um, where this where this happens uh, in this way. Keep in mind that as much as I disapprove of the message that's sent about federalism and about the role of the federal government of the states with the California legalization, uh, de facto legalization in gosh, if it's Colorado and and Washington, but there are, some other places have followed suit, right? Or they've at least decriminalized it. There are a few places now, but a couple of states, stretching back for a few years, have effectively decriminalized marijuana. But that's different because the federal government has said, "All right, we're cool with that for now." Do I think that that's a good way for the country? No, I think that Congress should, you know, either they should pass laws that prohibit substances. At the federal level, using inter- the Interstate Commerce Clause, by the way, which is uh, distressing. Uh, the inter- inter- Interstate Com- Commerce Clause is abused by statists. It is the many-headed hydra uh, from which so many of our authoritarian ills uh, stem in this country. So much of what the federal government does that it shouldn't is because of Wickard v. Filburn and the Interstate Commerce Clause. Quick version of it is the guy selling wheat. But he's like, I'm not selling it across state lines. Well, they say, well, selling it within state lines affects the price across state lines. Therefore, we'll regulate it as though you're selling it across state lines. Once you apply that logic to things, there's really no there's no such thing as a state anymore, which is how you had in the 90s, even the Violence Against Women Act passed at a federal level, even though all 50 states had statutes criminalizing, as they should, domestic violence. Uh, but it's not a federal government issue. It's a state and local issue. But they said, well, it affects commerce. I mean, you know, they, they've done this with any number of things. Uh, but if marijuana is not going to be illegal, the federal government should back off and not have it be illegal. Nonetheless, the point I'm making is about the state versus the federal. And on drugs, at least the federal government says, OK, states will allow it. With immigration and sanctuary cities, the federal government's like, no, 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 we got it. This is an urgent problem. We've got to handle this. We've got way too much illegal immigration happening in this country. Way too many illegal aliens running around. Many of them are dangerous. They're committing a lot of crimes. And this is a problem we have to address. And state and local governments are saying, sorry, I don't want to, no, no part of it. I don't want to help you on that one. So that's what I mean. Nowhere else do you have this. Nowhere else do you have uh, government authorities who are supposed to be about the rule of law who are actively working to undermine the rule of law and Trump has had enough of it. And yes, indeed, California is 
ground zero for this fight. And Trump singled out Governor Jerry Brown for being among the worst of the worst offenders of the sanctuary city policy type. Governor Brown's done a very poor job running California. They have the highest taxes in the United States. Uh, the place is totally out of control. You have sanctuary cities where you have criminals living in the sanctuary cities. And then the mayor of Oakland goes out and notifies when ICE is going in to pick them up. And many of them were criminals with criminal records and very dangerous people. You would say dangerous people. And uh, no, I think the governor's doing a terrible job running the state of California. I think that's fair to say. I've got so many friends who live in California who are like, yeah, it's beautiful here. It's great. But the taxes and government services and infrastructure, you know, not unless you are really rich and, you know, already got it made in the shade. You do not want to try to make it happen out in California. They say it's just it's just too hard. Um, It's just there are too many regulations and too many hurdles put in the way of success and success is increasingly uh, penalized there. So, look, I, 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 this is where you, you got to see if Trump is, uh, Trump is really going to get it done. There's no way for him to back off. There's no way for him to back off the wall without letting his base down. It's, it's just not possible. And I, I think this is one issue. You know, the, the Trump supporters, the real diehard Trump supporters, uh, believe that they can give some leeway to Trump to get certain things done. They're not, oh, well, he's going to get it all right away. But the day that Trump says, sorry, we can't make the wall happen, and it's not, and it's something that I could do something about, is the day that his base starts to crumble. Uh, if, if he, and if he delivers on the wall, the, the opposite effect will happen, which is his base will stay with him through. They'll give him so much leeway. They'll stay with him through anything because they'll know. That was the single biggest promise of his entire campaign that was also the promise that was most ridiculed by the left and that got the Democrats the most upset. So the wall's a big deal. Um, it is It is a big deal, and it's not going to get built all at once, and I know there's going to be problems and everything else, but getting it going sends huge signals, and uh, that's why Trump is out there today talking about how important it is uh, to put up this wall and what it will mean for us going forward. You know, just just imagine if our southern border was like our northern border in terms of not having to worry as much about illegal aliens, about criminal infiltration, even possible terrorist infiltration. We, we could live in that world. Our northern border doesn't keep us up at night with worry. Our southern border shouldn't, and it should be addressed. And this is an old school solution for a current day problem. Create an obstacle. That gives you better ability to police and and gives you that additional really real force multiplier effect of having, yes, Border Patrol that can react quickly, have drones in the air, have all the different sensors and electronic assistance that they can bring to bear. But also, you know, not just play, uh, you know, hide and seek and run around in the desert and trying to find people when all they have to do is just keep walking. That's going to be a game changer, I think. 844-900-2825 if you want to chat about this or anything else. 844-900-BUCK. And we've got a lot more, including uh, what's going on with the whole Tillerson-Pompeo shakeup. I'll give you more thoughts on that, so stay with me.
honor your duty to your country, now we must honor our duty to you. For too long, the men and women of the United States Armed Forces have been asked to do more with less. You've borne the costs of underinvestment and deferred modernization and also deferred maintenance. You've endured longer and more frequent deployments. You've spent countless hours fixing and maintaining old equipment. President Trump speaking earlier today at the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. And it's always, I think, so notable that when Trump speaks to the troops, he speaks with a, a, uh, an affection and a reverence and a respect that is very apparent, despite the fact that the media has been trying for a long time to suggest that Trump doesn't respect the military, he doesn't respect military service because of things he said to political opponents. Um, and, and every person, and I know people on all sides of the aisle and all kinds of stuff, including military and intelligence work. Uh, but all the military folks I talked to are like, yeah, Trump is Trump is very well-liked as commander-in-chief, overwhelmingly well-liked as commander-in-chief. And I don't think there's nearly enough attention given by the various media outlets to that fact. And his focusing on uh, rebuilding parts of the military that have not received adequate funding and his efforts to uh, improve different parts of that authorization and uh, financial authorization process, I think, is getting a lot of people over onto his side from uh, from those who are military and also from the veteran community, too. Um, but uh, he also mentioned nuclear force specifically. We're also modernizing our nuclear capabilities and rebuilding our nuclear infrastructure We're investing more money than we have ever done before because we have to be so far ahead of any other country. It's a capability we never even want to think about using, but we have to be prepared. And in a nuclear front, we are so far and will be so far ahead of any other country. You know, I think it's notable that with the recent bluster from Vladimir Putin on the nuclear weapons that he has in his arsenal, it's not some people have said that he he doesn't have that capability. And this stuff he's talking about with the, uh, you know, the, what, the hypersonic glide vehicles and things like that. Uh, it's not that it would be impossible to do. Just many of the analysts I saw said they're not they don't believe or they're not sure that Putin has already gotten there. But these are things that will most likely be a reality very soon if they're not already. And that will change the way that we have to think about missile defense and intercontinental ballistic missiles. And once you start adding advanced technologies into it, you you no longer have mutually assured destruction if one side can reasonably be expected to shoot down whatever missiles may come its way if they're old school missiles. Or, Or on the other side of it, if one side of the equation say the Russians or somebody else, has missiles that can reliably get around any defense that we have. You know, that, that changes the strategic calculation, and I think Trump is aware of this. And it's very, look, just like with Reagan, you'll remember this, these are very expensive issues, and you have to take a long-term view. But if, if we want 
to maintain our military preeminence and, be, and maintain our role as the world superpower, we can't allow ourselves to fall behind on this and think in terms that are outdated about all of it. So, oh, but there's one other part of this that was like a hey moment today. I was like, whoa, hold on a second. Is Trump really going to? Yeah, he's going there. He's talking about talking about space and the space race in terms of national security. So think of that. Space Force, because we're spending a lot and we have a lot of private money coming in. Tremendous. You saw what happened the other day and tremendous success. From the very beginning, many of our astronauts have been soldiers and sailors, airmen, Coast Guardsmen and Marines. And our service members will be vital to ensuring America continues to lead the way into the stars. We're going to lead the way in space. We're way, way behind. And we're catching up fast. Space Force. I like it. I want to be a part of Space Force. Sounds awesome. I'd want some kind of laser gun that goes pew, pew, you know, Space Force. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I would enjoy it. But it is getting more and more a reality. He mentioned the private sector money that's coming into it. Look at what uh, Elon Musk just said, uh, I think yesterday, about Mars. Get yourself to Mars. Uh, that's a reference to Total Recall Schwarzenegger, who will be making an appearance later on in the show as well. Uh, but yes, Elon Musk, play it. We are building the first uh, ship, the first Mars um, or, inter- or interplanetary ship. Um right now and i think we'll be able to do short flights short sort of up and down flights um probably sometime in the first half of next year gonna have ships visiting mars folks you know this is one thing that the climate change alarmists and the radical environmentalist left and the redistributionists who just think that we have a it's all about what we do with the pie we have now not what the the economic pie looks like tomorrow uh, and you know what the government can do with it, meaning who they give it to, is that this is all going to be changing so rapidly. You know, one thing I will say is I I, I kind of hate airlines, and I know it's easy to hate on airlines, but I really have a tough time not hating on them these days. Uh, every time I fly, there's a problem, and it's it's as reliable as clockwork. Every time I fly, there's a problem, and I, I saw that terrible story about a, a woman who had to put her, was forced to put her dog in the overhead compartment and the dog died. I would lose my mind. I hope she sues that airline out of, you know, sues its pants off, so to speak. And I just would like to see technology advance to a point where we can get airlines that are not punishing us so that they can make more money. Because that's what they really do. It's it's put you in the most uncomfortable seats, in the most uncomfortable places, and the, you know, and and have you at their mercy and everything else, and it's all for their bottom line. And I I would just love to see disruption in that industry, and I'm hoping that air and space travel will advance to a point where we can finally say uh, sayonara to the old version of the airlines we've seen for decades now, where it's just it's it's their world, and you're living in it for the few hours or whatever it is that you're trying to get to wherever it is you're going it's uh, you know space flight i know is not directly tied in this but i'm thinking about flying cars too and all this technological progress is going to change a lot when it comes to policies and so you want to you want to keep that in mind maybe another day i'll give you a speech on how we're decarbonizing as a society already and that's why the climate change alarmists just have no idea what they're talking about we are naturally decarbonizing
using less carbon-intensive fuels all the time. It's happening as a result of technology. Um, but there I go on all that stuff. We're going to get into the uh, Tillerson-Pompeo shift and maybe also that poisoning in uh, Russia. And we'll talk about that and more coming up here. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you very much for being here. We have the firing of Tillerson as Secretary of State to get into for a few moments here, as well as the elevation of CI Director Pompeo to the Secretary of State role, and the uh, also the promotion of a woman to head the CIA, and... Then you have a, a Trump aide who is gone for security clearance reasons. I don't find that last part of it all that interesting or noteworthy. Plenty of people leave administrations for reasons like this all the time. So I'll leave that one off our docket for now. Uh, but Tillerson, uh, well, he said this about the end of his tenure as what we used to refer to as sex state. Here's what he said. I received a call today from the President of the United States at a little afternoon time from Air Force One. And I've also spoken to White House Chief of Staff Kelly to ensure we have clarity as to the days ahead. What is most important is to ensure an orderly and smooth transition during a time that the country continues to face significant policy and national security challenges. As such, effective at the end of the day, I'm delegating all responsibilities of the Office of the Secretary to Deputy Secretary of State Sullivan. My commission as Secretary of State will terminate at midnight, March the 31st. So he's out. Didn't have a whole lot to uh, say about the president on this one. Did mention what's sort of left to deal with in terms of the portfolio of the Secretary of State, notably China and Russia. Much work remains to establish a clear view of the nature of our future relationship with China. How shall we deal with one another over the next 50 years and ensure a period of prosperity for all of our peoples, free of conflict between two very powerful nations? And much work remains to respond to the troubling behavior and actions on the part of the Russian government. Russia must assess carefully as to how its actions are in the best interest of the Russian people and of the world more broadly. Continuing on their current trajectory is likely to lead to greater isolation on their part, a situation which is not in anyone's interest. So Tillerson's done, and now we have to look at what that means going forward. Now, now I mentioned in the last hour, I think that Pompeo makes more sense as the person to be in this role. I think that Pompeo is aligned with Trump on policy. I think that Pompeo is a a guy who understands the political fight that the administration is currently in. And I believe that Pompeo will be more effective than Tillerson was on issues like Iran and the recertification or the lack of certification, whatever ends up happening on the Iran nuclear deal, on dealing with uh, these upcoming North Korea talks, and then also 
everything else that comes along with being Secretary of State. I just think that uh, Pompeo and Trump, uh, well, Trump says this, and it's not just my my opinion, man. It's also what the president himself has made quite clear, um, that he really gets along with Pompeo. I've worked with Mike Pompeo now for quite some time. Tremendous energy, tremendous intellect. We're always on the same wavelength. Uh, the relationship has been very good, and uh, that's what I need as Secretary of State. I wish Rex Tillerson well. Gina, by the way, who I know very well, who I've worked very closely, will be the first woman director of the CIA. She's an outstanding person who also I have gotten to know very well. By the way, I, I don't have any opinion for you really on the the new uh, the new director. Um, I've been out long enough and away from it long enough that any of the kind of you know it, it, I don't I mean I don't I don't know her so I don't know anything about this. Got nothing for you on it. That's what I'm trying to say. So if Trump says she's good, I mean all I know is what I'm reading about in the newspapers, just like you, and we'll have to see. First female, though, to head the agency, so that's uh, that's going to be an interesting talking point that will get lost very quickly because the media never the media doesn't consider women who are Republicans or even women in a Republican administration to be breaking any glass ceilings. That that can't really happen. Uh, but Pompeo over Tillerson, we'll have to see. I mean, Trump said that look that that Rex and he that they were just having some some. Uh, Issues between the two of them. That's one way to put it. I really didn't discuss it very much with him, honestly. Uh, I made that decision by myself. Rex wasn't, as you know, in our in this country. Uh, I made the North Korea decision with consultation from many people, but I made that decision by myself. I actually got along well with Rex, but... Really, it was a different mindset. It was a different thinking. I've gotten along well with Mike Pompeo. And frankly, I get along well with Rex, too. And, you know, I wish Rex a lot of good things. I think Rex will be much happier now. I think so, too. That's what I really want to get to. Now Tillerson gets to go back to being the former CEO of ExxonMobil, until recently at least, the biggest company in the world. And he's going to be someone who has a lot. He can spend a lot of money. He's got a lot of money. He can hang out, do whatever he wants. And he was just too much of an alpha dog to play the role that he needed to in this administration. We all know in Trump world, there can only be one alpha dog. And you know, Rex Tillerson, I think, was always kind of like, I don't need this job. I'll do it to serve my country. But if, if you take that position and you don't see eye to eye with Trump on where things need to go, it's going to be tough. Uh, it's going to be tough. You get uh, you get two two alphas in the room. You know, two can enter. Only one only one will leave. Right? I mean, two uh, or like Highlander. There can be only one. It was like that in this administration. That's my analysis. Is the Highlander theory of Trump's cabinet picks? There can be only one. So there you have it. Uh, I don't have much for you on that before. Other than that, you know, I think I'm gonna I want to mix it up here. I want to talk to you about something that I I'd be willing to bet you haven't heard much coverage of anywhere else, uh, if any. And the media is trying very hard not to cover it. And I've got just enough for uh, just enough vetting and analysis of it to, to share with you tonight. Did you know that the South African uh, South African government may go forward 
with land appropriation, which is just a fancy way of saying seizing land. Seizing land from farmers. Why are they seizing this land from the farmers? Because the farmers are white. This is a whole campaign that is being ignored, swept aside, uh, kept out of the public's eye. And we have to start asking why. Why is that the case? Why are, uh, am I sitting here, and, and I'm willing to bet that very few of you have heard, uh, maybe some of you have seen something on social media about it, but it is, it is very much going on, that there is a campaign now to dispossess people in South Africa, which is the wealthiest uh, country in sub-Saharan Africa, to dispossess people based on their skin color, because the government now is saying, uh, particularly the more radical Marxist elements of the South African government are saying that the land was never theirs to begin with. And some very disturbing stuff is coming out about all this. And it's going to be tough for the media to keep hiding what's going on here. You have campaigns, uh, systemic campaigns of intimidation, violence, and rape against the white farmers that have been well documented now. And the government is not only unwilling to help, but there was one case that I read about where a woman was trying to defend herself, I believe, with a firearm, and she ended up being arrested. So you've got very, very dangerous things going on right now in South Africa. And I just want to talk to you about what's happening there, because how is this not a bigger news story? And also, at what point do we get to say that the Trump administration should consider taking in these farmers as refugees? Uh, They're English-speaking. They're from a an, an Anglo uh, Anglo tradition of, of culture and rule of law. How, how about we open our doors to the, the farmers in South Africa who are being threatened with murder and dispossession of their land? Now, this is a question that I'm just wondering why no one's really asking it. But you, you see this happening time and again. It's kind of like the Christians in Iraq. You know, they're, they're facing extinction. And they're being openly targeted. But, you know, we, we can't really help them here because, because what? They're a minority there. They're under threat. Well, yeah, but we don't want to seem like we're playing favorites. We play favorites with refugee populations all the time. But when we look outside our own borders, we have this sense of, well, whoever's a minority or a, a, a you know, somebody who either suffers from oppression or enjoys privilege here, they must have the same thing in the rest of the world. That's not how the world works. I just think you'll find this to be a fascinating story and and frightening. And when you look at the precursor situation or the most similar situation with Zimbabwe next door, uh, then you see what the future could look like unless this gets stopped. And the international community should have a role to play here. The U.S. government should speak up. I'll give you some of the details on this when we come back. I think you'll be fascinated by this. Stay with me. What is going on in South Africa right now? There's been some reporting on it here and there, but there seems to be an unwillingness or a, a desire in the media to not pay any attention to this. Uh, even though some of those who are in positions of authority and power are saying some pretty terrible things in South Africa's parliament just passed a motion within the last few weeks 
that would that could lead to the seizure of land from white farmers and that could get very violent and very scary as well and on top of that it's deeply immoral and wrong but you have for example uh, Julius Malema who is a far left marxist radical but elected uh, member of parliament in South Africa who at a at a rally earlier this year said this about the white farmers. They've been living peacefully. They've been swimming in a pool of privilege. They've been enjoying themselves because they always owned our land. We, the rightful owners, our peace was disturbed by white men's arrival here. They committed a black genocide. They killed our people during land dispossession. Today, we are told, don't disturb them. Even when they disturbed our peace, they found peaceful Africans here. They killed them. They slaughtered them like animals. We are not calling for the slaughtering of white people, at least for now. I, don't know if you, I know it, it was tough with the audio there here. He said at the end, this is the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters Party in South Africa. He's a political leader there. He says they're not calling for the slaughter of white people yet. This is at a public rally, folks. That That's the kind of thing that, you know, in most countries, most societies would raise a lot of eyebrows, get a lot of attention. This was earlier this year. And there is some reporting on this, but not nearly enough Uh, here is part of a report from sky news the uk owned international uh, news channel and here's what the reporter had to say about the violence against white farmers in south africa what we've seen over there is is police do do respond they will turn up but it seems hardly anyone is ever arrested i think another problem with south africa is there's been this mandate to employ the so-called previously disadvantaged at any cost, and that's including in the police force. So we have very lowly skilled police who don't seem to have the capacity to investigate these crimes properly. Well, what he's referring to with the employing the previously disadvantaged is effectively a form of affirmative action. So he's saying you got police that have no skills, have no idea what they're doing, but they're being employed for largely political reasons who are showing up and being told, hey, this white farmer's been attacked in what is a, a racial and racist attack, right? They're attacking people because they're white, and they feel that they have a green light from the government, which just voted, the parliament just voted overwhelmingly to seize the property of white farmers. 85% of farmland in South Africa is in the hands of white farmers. And they show, police show up, and you know, they, don't want it. they either don't want to or are unwilling to do anything about it, or unable to do anything about it because of their lack of training. So this is really disturbing stuff. And and people are saying, well, why don't the farmers leave? Well, think about this. Who are they going to sell their land to? And they're farmers. Their, their livelihood, everything is tied up in their land. If they leave, what do they have? Who will even buy the farm from them? The answer is nobody, because right now the government's talking about literally seizing it, nationalizing for the purposes of social justice, or in this case, racial justice, nationalizing farms, 
to redistribute to the people. By the way, this is very similar to the social justice rhetoric you've heard in Venezuela until recently as well. Oh, we have to give more to the people, land to the people, redistribution reforms. This stuff always ends in disaster. It has ended in absolute disaster next door in Zimbabwe, which had the same program going on, basically. Now, it's not, it's, it has to still pass. It has to be signed off on, but the legislative branch of the South African government, the parliament, has passed it overwhelmingly. In Zimbabwe, the seizure of land from white farmers, which was done with, with the absolute, uh, you know, complicity and, and, and on the orders, really, of, of the government, has turned Zimbabwe from a country that was Southern Africa's breadbasket into a country that uh, can't feed itself, that has to import food, that has food shortages regularly, um, and has hyperinflation of a level. The currency has actually turned into nothing. It, their, their currency has really no value. They've abandoned it. They literally inflated the currency into, into zero. Uh, but things did not get better when they did their land appropriations there. And if you want to see what that was like, because it was happening relatively recently, a documentary uh, I would recommend to you is Mugabe and the White, I believe it's Mugabe and the White African, um, which I saw years ago, and it's specifically about, or is it Mugabe and the White Farmer? I can't remember. Um, I'll ch- uh, Producer Mike, let me know which one it is, the documentary. It's very good. I saw it maybe 10 years ago. And it shows you, you've got a documentarian who's living on a, on a white farm. This is in Zimbabwe now, next door formerly Rhodesia, Zimbabwe after independence. Uh, and they've got these, what, what is it? Uh, the white African. Yeah, Zimbabwe and the white, uh, uh, Mugabe rather, and the white African. Mugabe is the dictator of, or was until recently, the dictator of, of Zimbabwe. Uh, very bad guy, by the way, very bad guy. Um, but in that, you see these government officials who show up and are just like, you know, you white people are scum, you're thieves. This is not your land. It's our land now. It belongs to the people, which by the people, they just mean government cronies and the power structure. But they're just going to take it. And what happened is they stripped the uh, farms down to nothing. Nobody was able to or cared to be able to plant any crops. They just, dis- you know, they took all the, I mean, the copper wiring out of the buildings. They took the, the farm equipment. They sold it off. Everything was sold and destroyed and nothing left. What do people think is going to happen if they seize the farms from the farmers in South Africa? What message does that send to the world, by the way? Yeah, this is distressing. And I just would want to note, given the, how much we talk about refugees, we take refugees from Central America because Central America is violent, not because Central Americans are being targeted for being Central Americans. We're talking about racial targeting by the government in South Africa, a relatively advanced economy and country. Why haven't you heard about this until now? He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. This is part of a group of nerve agents known as Novichok. Based on the positive identification of this chemical agent by world-leading experts at the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down, our knowledge that Russia has previously produced this agent and would still be capable of doing so, 
Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations, and our assessment that Russia views some defectors as legitimate targets for assassinations, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Theresa May, British Prime Minister, uh, laying down the law there on uh, Moscow. And this is this is brazen stuff, but it's not new for Russia, really. I mean, this using this substance, um, which is a nerve agent that, as I did some research today, was uh, coming across that it's more potent than VX gas, which sounds like very, very, very nasty stuff indeed. But to assassinate somebody with a nerve agent on a street in the UK... Uh, or in, on a park bench, I think is where he was found with his daughter, or to try to. I know they're in, I believe they're both in uh, uh, the hospital, and who knows what the long-term damage is. But this, this is how the Russians do things. They enforce uh, loyalty. I mean, it, it, Russia is really a run as a mafia state, and there's a, the, what is it, the Omerta, the Code of Silence, right? They, they kind of enforce that extraterritorially around the world. If you defect, or that's the old, the old Soviet terminology, but if you become an informant for a foreign government, a foreign intelligence service, or if the Russians believe you to have be- become one, uh, they will get rid of you in a way that's meant to show that they, yeah, their fingerprints are all over this. It shows that the Russians were behind it. It sends the message very clearly. Uh, and that's just the way they do things. And you start to wonder, well, what are we, what are we expecting? Uh, what are we expecting the response to be? Uh, you know, this March fourth nerve agent attack on Sergei Skripal uh, and his daughter Yulia also put bystanders at risk and bystanders who were exposed to this poison. The poison has actually left traces at a pub and a pizza parlor that they visited. So we're not entirely clear, I think, on where they, I'm just making sure I'm not missing this, on where they were put in contact with this military-grade nerve agent. But we do know that the Russians did this understanding that we were likely to find out that it was the Russians, or not that we would find out that it was the Russians once we uh, were looking at this. And I know people are already bringing up the previous poisonings they've done. I mean, there was one way back when that I think was traced to the, uh, this was on a, on a bridge, and I think it was traced to the Bulgarian uh, secret police trained by the Soviets, but I could be wrong about that, where they used a ricin-tipped uh, pellet in an umbrella on, a, on what was a successful assassination this is what they do. And that was for being a dissident. I mean, th- there was a time when the Soviets would kill you just for being a former for being a former Soviet who was telling the world the truth about what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. But now if you are a, a turncoat on the Kremlin anywhere in the world, they'll come after you. Now, what should people have asked me this? You know, what should we do about? It? Oh, by the way, Trump is is uh, it's talked about this one earlier today, too. As soon as we get the facts straight, and we're going to be speaking with the British today, we're speaking with Theresa May today, and as soon as we get the facts straight, if we agree with them, we will condemn Russia or whoever it may be. He says we'll condemn them. For a lot of people, that's not 
sufficient in this case. But then I start to push and say, well, what would you like them to do? You know, it was a Russian missile with Russian-backed separatists that shot a plane full of AIDS researchers out of the sky and killed over 100 people. I forget what the full number was. Remember that back uh, a few years ago under the Obama administration? A Russian missile shot a civilian jetliner out of the sky. You know, what, what was the big retaliation we did there? Now, they'll say it was an accident, but the point is the Russians were responsible for that. Um, it was Russian aggression in Ukraine that even made that a problem in the first place. What would folks really like us to do? Maybe they'll expel diplomats in the UK. You know, maybe they will uh, get rid of some people that they believe are snooping around doing shady stuff for the Russians in the UK. All right. But the truth is, you know, we've got to find more creative ways to slap back at Putin. I mean, the media is going to complain about how, oh, it's not strong enough and the, the the language isn't isn't clear enough what's that you think putin gives a crap what anybody in the country says about what russia did no right that's just foolishness that's just utter nonsense so then you have to look to okay what are really the feasible responses and the, the answer is i haven't seen one yet i don't know what we're gonna do about this you know, and the Russians play dirty, and they play by a different code. And we've already got sanctions against them, so we'll keep an eye on this. I'm going to try to think of what a what a good retaliatory response would be. And we've got our friend uh, Fred Flight joining us here to talk about North Korea in a minute, so stay with me. All right, so North Korea, big in the headlines in the last few days because of the upcoming Trump-Kim Jong-un summit. Some people are saying this is going to be the beginning of a of a new era in u.s north korea relations others are saying it's a trap it's a terrible idea it's going to be a diplomatic ambush of sorts well what's true and what's not we've got fred flights with us now on the line he is like me a former cia analyst uh fred is also the author of the upcoming uh the coming north korean nuclear nightmare which is a book you should all check out. It's available on Amazon. And he's a senior vice president for policy and programs at the Center for Security Policy. Fred, great to have you back, man. Thanks for making the time. Hey, Buck, good to be here. All right, let's let's start. Before we get into the specifics of your book, although it's obviously going to tie into our conversation, uh, what, do you, what do you make of, of the Trump offer? Just take us to the 30,000-foot view here. Well, I think we have to consider that uh, President Trump has changed the game concerning North Korea, his unorthodox diplomacy, which everyone was criticizing a few years ago as trying to get us into a war. Those same people who had nothing bad to say about Obama's abysmal policies that allowed Iran's, uh, not, uh, North Korea's nuclear missile programs to surge, now they're condemning the president for giving away too much. So I think the president has put the fear of God in the, in the, in the North Koreans and forced them to change tactics. Um, I don't think they're sincere, frankly. I think that this is probably a ploy to divide us from other countries, to get concessions and to weaken uh, sanctions and to buy time to continue developing its nuclear missile programs. But at a minimum, we have a change in tactics. And the next task is to get the North Koreans to prove their sincerity in wanting to denuclearize. Now, the pressure is going to continue do you think that it would be wise for the administration to continue to reach out to China and others to say, you got to keep this going, or could that sour the talks before they even happen? 
no, we have to keep the pressure on. We're going to do that. The South Koreans have said that they're going to do that. Uh, we can't do what we've done in the past, basically let our guard down, which is what the North Koreans are after, weakening sanctions. And, uh, you know, when we start pressing them for things like inspections, they got to be robust inspections. We can't do what the Iranians and the North Koreans have done in similar circumstances, putting a lot of the sensitive sites off limits so the world can't determine what types of illegal nuclear activities they were engaged in. We're speaking to Fred Flights. He's a former CIA analyst and author of The Coming North Korean Nuclear Nightmare. Fred, take me into uh, the book, which is obviously very topical because we're now faced with a the, the most important negotiation, I think it's fair to say, of Trump's life, most likely, thus far. It's, it's certainly got to make it in the top three or four. Um, but tell me about the North Korean nuclear nightmare as you see it. Well, the coming North Korean nuclear nightmare has a subtitle, What Trump Must Do to Reverse Obama's Strategic Patience. You know, I talk about how numerous presidents have mishandled North Korea and have been taken advantage of. Certainly, uh, Clinton was. George W. Bush was taken advantage uh, of by the North Koreans very badly. But nothing compares to the in- incredibly incompetent strategic patience policy of, of the Obama administration, which basically was a policy to kick the North Korean situation down the road while its nuclear missile programs were growing and growing and growing under Kim Jong-un. And that left what President Trump has often described as a mess when he came into office. We know Susan Rice said early in in the Trump administration that we just have to accept North Korea as a nuclear power. That sort of sums up the Obama administration's approach to Iran and North Korea. Let's just live with it. That's unacceptable. That's what the president said. And I think by actually putting the use of force on the table and an unorthodox foreign policy, it really has ratcheted up sanctions and sanctions compliance. As I said earlier, he has changed the game towards North Korea, and I discuss that in the book. Now, Fred, I, as I see it, um, and there might be a third option I'm, I'm not bringing up here, so feel free to toss that in the mix, too. But assuming the Trump talks fail, which I think and this is not a, a declaration for my part about whether I think it's a good idea or not. I'm actually I think that that Trump your point, shaking up the game, he's got to do something, right? I mean, the, the pathway we're on is not sustainable, but let's say that it doesn't happen. Let's say it is what I believe you agree is the most likely scenario, that this is either Kim Jong-un stalling for time, uh, trying to take some concessions out of our hands, all the things that one would expect here from this regime based on previous behavior. It seems to me that we have two paths, which after that, which would be, on the one hand, learn to try and live with a fully nuclear-capable North Korea that has ICBMs that could hit anywhere in the world, or some kind of a military strike. Is there a third option, and what do you think we do about those options as I put them out there? Well, we first have to talk about what is the purpose of North Korea's nuclear and uh, nuclear weapons and missiles. And I think with 60 nuclear weapons, according to the intelligence community and ICBMs, We can't consider this a deterrent anymore. This is an offensive force that the North plans to use eventually to force the unification of the Koreas on its terms and to drive us from the region. So there there is going to be a military conflict eventually. That's why if these talks don't go well and if, if, if another round of sanctions and an additional diplomatic pressure fails, I argue in the book that we have to start considering the limited use of military force against North Korea, perhaps with a naval blockade and shooting down missiles to further ratchet up the pressure. And the economic pressure should be ratcheted up significantly. This is already causing 
pain to the North, North Korean economy. I think they respect strength, and I think the use of force like that uh, will be another step towards convincing them to negotiate in good faith to give up their nuclear weapons. What would limited use of force against North Korea conceivably look like? Well, I'm thinking of a naval blockade and shooting down missiles, basically saying to, to North Korea that we're not going to tolerate uh, uh, any more missile tests. And we, we, we may expand that to taking out missiles on the ground. The North is already afraid we're going to do that, which is why it has been launching missiles from uh, near Pyongyang, near populated areas, because it fears the U.S. might start doing this. Um, it is intolerable that the North is beginning to develop ICBMs and may already have them that they could uh, use to transport nuclear weapons against the United States. And, and I, I think time is running out. Fred, for folks at home, how should they think of the willingness of the North Korean regime to uh, do something that we would see very unwise, but that they may feel cornered to do and uh, kill a whole lot of people in the process? Well, I mean, some people have wondered whether uh, Kim Jong-un is interested in firing uh, missiles at Guam or at the United States, maybe unprovoked. I don't think that the North Korean regime has a death wish. Uh, and I think that if there was a limited use of military force such as shooting down missiles, the North is not going to attack South Korea or the United States because we would flatten the country. Uh, and, and I think eventually, if, if these talks fail, we may have to make it clear to them we're simply not going to tolerate any more ICBM tests. And, uh, you know, if you're going to test us on that, we're going to start shooting them down. Is there a universe of re oh, let, me, let me put it this way. Let me rephrase this. Is there a realistic proposition in your mind that after this Trump summit, now I'm not saying likely, but is, is it even realistic to think that there's a world in which North Korea moves towards actual denuclearization? It's hard to imagine that that's going to happen, especially after one meeting. All we can say is that the president has forced the North Koreans to change tactics. Uh, we haven't gotten a response whether they're actually going to attend the summit. I think they were they were as surprised as everyone else when President Trump immediately accepted this offer. Uh, and right now, I think they're trying to formulate their response. And I, I expect they're going to have some un unacceptable conditions, such as we'll get rid of our nuclear weapons if all U.S. forces are pulled out of South Korea, which is not going to happen. Um, we, 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 you know, we will see. Uh, I'd like to see the summit take place in Seoul to expose Kim Jong-un to South Korean society and its prosperity. I don't know if that's going to change his mind, but I'd like to get him out of North Korea and maybe weaken the, the relationship he has with, I think, a, a number of very malign advisors. One last one for you, Fred, just so we can set expectations. And we know the media is going to move, the media overall will move goalposts on this. You know, a few months ago, it was Trump is taking us into nuclear war with his tweets. Now it's Trump is rushing into diplomacy. You know, it's, it's always one or the other. Uh, but so we can understand what expectations should be. What would, um, let's say, a, a low probability but high impact diplomatic victory from the Trump side look like after this summit? What's the best that we could reasonably hope for if Trump, and again, as you said, maybe it doesn't even happen, if Trump and Kim Jong-un sit down, what does winning look like? I think an outline for de denuclearizing and for lowering tensions is the best we could hope for. I don't think it will be an agreement. And there are ways to lower tensions the North Koreans might agree to, like possibly sending Chinese or Russian peacekeepers into North Korea to guarantee them that 
you know, there's no chance of a U.S. attack because it would be an attack on Russia or China. I mean, there's some creative ways uh, that, that could be pursued to try to address their interest in denuclearization if they're sincere. But so far, we don't know that. All right. Fred Flights, everybody, former CIA analyst. Book coming out, The Coming North Korean Nuclear Nightmare, available now on Amazon, Fred? It's available on Amazon, and we are doing a Facebook Live press conference, 2.30 p.m. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, uh, March 14th. All right. Fantastic. Everybody, be sure to check it out tomorrow, the Facebook Live for the book. Fred, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. Uh, we've got hour three coming up, and I'm going to be talking to you about politics with our friend Selena Zito, this race that's just about, just about uh, over in terms of the voting, or at least we're at the deadline. Um, we'll tell you what's going on, so stay with us. So there's a big election, as you may have heard, going on as we are on air. In fact, polls have just closed, I believe, as we go on air here at around uh, 8 Eastern Standard Time. Selena Zito is with us now to discuss this, and she's going to tell us what she thinks is going on here. She is a CNN contributor, a New York Post columnist, and author of the upcoming book, The Great, Re- uh, the Great Revolt, which we're hoping will have a great result because you're all going to buy it, uh, <laughs> out in May. Selena, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we got uh, 18th con- Congressional District in play here. We've talked to you, I believe, about this one specifically before. Connor Lamb versus Rick Ciccone. Lamb is the Democrat. Ciccone is the Republican. There's also a libertarian named Drew Miller, which is so cute. I just like how the libertarians are just, they're just in there. You know, it's adorable. Anyway, uh, what do you think is going to happen with Lamb and Ciccone here? Well, you know, Lamb has had the edge in the past two weeks. He has the most excitement generated around his candidacy, um, you know, for a number of unique reasons. He's not used the word Democrat in any on, on any of his campaign signs. Um, he I haven't noticed it on his website. Now there might it might be on there somewhere, um, but it's not in his ads. He's essentially run independent of his party. He put a, the gauntlet down early with a very effective ad saying running against Nancy Pelosi. He's pro gun. He's for the president's tariffs and. And um, in, in, in many ways, this election is like a, a Republican primary with a more conservative Republican running against a more moderate Republican. Connor Lamb is also very young. He's very charming. He has a great uh, background, a military. Uh, former right, he's US a Marine captain. and a former federal prosecutor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he has, I mean, he's the perfect Democrat. But there's a couple things we need to think about here. But is he really a Democrat, Um, Selena? That's what, I mean, he's pro life and pro gun, which feels like, how does he sit on the same side of the. I'm sorry? Yeah. When he gets to Washington, he has to be a Democrat. Well, no, I know, but I was going to say, how does he sit next to Nancy Pelosi with a straight face as somebody who's pro gun and pro uh, pro life? No, he's not pro life. Oh, I thought he. Oh, that. Oh, no. No, in fact, he's not even for the 20-week ban. Ah, important distinction. 
So he's not... Yeah, very important. Yes, very important yeah. distinction. I, I thought he was really running as essentially a stealth Republican, like the old school. Remember the gun-toting Democrats of yore who were all about guns? Oh, yeah, and... I grew up one of those Democrats. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, you know, you're born Catholic and a Democrat in Western Pennsylvania. So, so that's that's an important distinguishing characteristic. So, yeah, because you, you, you can't be in good stead with the modern Democrat Party. I don't care what the situation is. If you're, you know, he, he was going to have to flip that position if he didn't have it already. But you're telling me he is pro-choice. So there we go. Yeah. So there's a couple unique things about this race. First of all, this this seat no longer exists, thanks to the state Supreme Court, which threw out uh, the old congressional districts, all 18 of them, calling them unconstitutional, and which is interesting because they did that seven years after they were drawn. So I don't know how they all of a sudden became unconstitutional. Oh, wait. There was an election, and Democrats won the majority in the state Supreme Court. Maybe that has something to do with it. Anyways, um, so this district no longer exists. Um, Second of all, he is garnering support from unions who robustly supported Trump in this district in 2016, but because Saccone is a pro, is a right-to-work guy, they do not, he does not um, gather their support. So I think the deciding vote here is going to be on uh, the union vote, the union family household vote. And that's the vote that could um, trigger this in, in in Lamb's direction, there are twenty-five thousand more registered Democrats in this uh, in this district, despite Trump winning it by twenty percentage points. So this would be see because because at the national level, obviously, this is gonna there, there's there's limited data you could draw from this for how the Democrats run in the midterms, and this is where all the old cliches about how all congressional races are actually local and all that stuff applies. But here, Selena, you would have someone who is running. Essentially, as a uh, a prototype of what the Democrats could do in other places to try to win back the voters that Trump got to beat Hillary in those key states like Pennsylvania. Right. Exactly. And 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 um, Lamb faces his own challenges. If he wins this evening, he is now thrust into a different congressional district where he will face progressive primary challengers. He has not faced a primary before, and as we all understand, including progressives, that is where the energy is. So you have to um, wonder, are they willing to go with a guy that's a proven winner, or do they want to go in with more with their passions um, on the resistance? Um, he also has never sort of, he has never once criticized President Trump during this entire election. So what will happen to him in a primary? So those are those are the things going forward. But I think the lesson, if if Lamb wins, I think the lesson is that Republicans need a better message outside of Nancy Pelosi is bad uh, because they need to talk about their accomplishments and not be so afraid of talking about Trump's accomplishments. The Republican Party has changed. It's more populist in nature, and they need to uh, to feed the beast in populism. And populism isn't just about anger. It's also about aspiration. And I talk a lot about that in, in my book, The Great Revolt, um, about understanding who these new coalitions are. We're speaking to Selena Zito. She is a CNN contributor, New York Post columnist, author of the upcoming 
uh, Opus, The Great Revolt, which she just mentioned. <laughs> Selena, what are some of the lessons and, and takeaways from your book that are applicable to this race right now in Pennsylvania? Because Pennsylvania is obviously one of those key states that everyone was like, whoa, hold on a second. Trump can. And yes, in fact, he did win that state. Yeah, I mean, elections are about, you know, gas pedal, brake pedal, right? And typically in midterms, um, voters want to put the brake pedal on the current uh, party in power. So what they need to do is understand that they need to run, again, as I just said, on a more populist, more aspirational um, campaign and less about the negatives on Nancy Pelosi. Talk about what you've accomplished. Talk about what you want to accomplish. Sort of like oh, the way that Ronald Reagan and, and Trump, even though people don't always get that, how he and made people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's the key. I don't think people are hungry for a negative. I mean, they should be reminded that if they if if the Republicans lose, Nancy Pelosi will be the House Speaker by all intents and purposes. But they also need to be reminded that they have to continue to go forward. And here are the reasons. And that message was very missing in this uh, special election. Let's assume for a second that these results, Selena, which are going to be coming in, the earliest results should be coming in shortly here, and we'll be looking at them when we're on air. Uh, But let's assume, for the purpose of our conversation, that Connor Lamb does, in fact, win this thing. What is the what, What does that do for the Democrat message going into the midterms? Do you think it affects it at a national level? You think they'll take this as a lesson learned, or is it just going to be a wait and see until we get much closer? I mean, if there's an, I talked to one Democratic strategist um, for my story this evening, and I, you know, I said, you know, what, what do you think? And he said, well, if we're start, if we're smart. Uh, Connor Lambs will win in primaries, but we don't control primaries. The people do. And it has been proven that the more active, the more engaged, the more excited Democrats are, are the ones that are more progressive. We don't know yet if they'll be willing to compromise some of their um, their their agenda uh, to win. I mean, Rahm Emanuel was incredibly good at making sure that happened in 2006, and he got moderate Democrats elect, uh, elected in primary in in swing states like Western Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and Ohio and Wisconsin and Iowa. Uh, they've got to go through that process, and, and they have to convince their voters in those kinds of districts that you want a Connor Lamb. It is un, – I'm unsure if, if uh, the most – um, right, but the, the hard left progressive types are not going to yeah. be excited yeah. about n- national level DNC efforts to get out the vote that include, yeah, we like guys who are kind of pro NRA in some places. You might have some progressive yeah. activists that even, you know, kick up some dust about this one. You get the, the Bernie bros and sisters may not like that too much going into the midterms. And and the intellectual liberals, too. You know, they're also, you know, incredibly um, swept up in this resistance uh, movement. And resistance is not aspirational. Both parties need to understand, in order to capture the imagination of their voters, it has to include this sweeping motion that you are going to be part of something bigger than yourself. And you are going to be part of something with other people. 
people. That's in our DNA. Um, Trump was very good at that. Uh, we'll see if they're able to do that uh, in the midterms. Selena Zito, everybody, author of the upcoming The Great Revolt. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, and I recommend you all do. I'll be reading it. I hope you do as well. Selena, thank you so much for joining. Always appreciate when you make the time. Thank you so much for having me. Team, we're going to roll into a break. Uh, We'll have any updates for you on that Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania election as we can, and we'll be right back. Governor Schwarzenegger, who I have so much fondness for because of his contributions to the pantheon of action movie greatness and, and his lines like, I'll be back, get to the chopper, all of it. Amazing. Really a major part of my childhood, which perhaps explains a lot of how I view the world, considering that a guy who was benching over 400 pounds, uh, w- was clearly taking performance-enhancing drugs and played Conan the Barbarian all too well, was like my hero growing up. But anyway, uh, I, th- I give Schwarzenegger a, a wide berth. You know, the guy's obviously made some mistakes. You know, he's done some things that were not good, uh, both as a politician and as a as a private person. No need for me to get into that, but... Uh, you know, really, really, Arnold. Some of the stuff that we found out in recent years was was a little tough. I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm an older man that uh, can see that we all make mistakes, and maybe I shouldn't judge too much. Although I guess I'm on a radio show and I have to judge. That all said, Arnold Schwarzenegger is still waxing philosophical on policy, and this is just going too far. He was at South by Southwest, which has become this major media music thing in Austin. I've, I've never been, but I'd like to go at some point. I know it's going on Austin right now. Next year, maybe I'll use it as another excuse to go visit Austin. But he's down there, and he says, and he said this on Politico's Off Message podcast, which I'd never even heard of before, and yeah, there's that, that, quote, uh, he wants to take on oil companies for, quote, knowingly killing people all over the world. He said that this is no different from the smoking issue. The tobacco industry knew for years and years and decades that smoking would kill people, would harm people and create cancer. And were hiding that fact from people and denied it. Then eventually they were taken to court and had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars because of that. The oil companies knew from 1959 on they did their own study that there would be global warming happening because of fossil fuels. And on top of that, it would be risky for people's lives. He says that this is like climate change, man. This is, you know, he's hosting a major environmental conference in May in Vienna. This is just all crap. This is what people do now when they want to burnish their brands. Because climate change gets you so, it gets you a very loyal, very globalist, internationalist audience. And it gets big donor supporters to your side. And the people who don't believe in this ignore it like a religion that they don't really care about for the most part until they make us deal with it. So that's why I just see this as this is pandering. I mean, Schwarzenegger doesn't need to do this. Um, By the way, he says, quote, we're going to go after them and we're going to be in there like an Alabama tick, because to me, it's absolutely irresponsible to know that your product is killing people and not have a warning label on it like tobacco. Every gas station on it, every car 
should have a warning label on it. Every product that has fossil fuel should have a warning label on it. This is the dumbest thing that the governor has said in a long time. I don't know, maybe ever. As a total aside here, but one that I could not help but uh, point out, his phrase here, we're going to be in there like an Alabama tick, is all too close to what Jesse the Body Ventura says in the movie Predator when referring to a pillbox of enemy. And he says, they're dug in there like an Alabama tick. I don't think that's an accident, friends. I think Schwarzenegger now in his political podcast is dropping some not so well-known action movie lines because that's just how he rolls. That's kind of a strange phrase for a guy from Austria, from the Austrian Alps to use. You know what I'm saying? It's not like he just threw in a yodel here. He's saying Alabama tick. Not from Alabama. We're out of California. What is this guy? I'm tell- If you go back, we could even find it maybe for tomorrow. There's a Jesse the Body Ventura line where he says that in, in Predator. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. So there you go. Um, anyway, this is craziness. This is, though, a, an issue that we're going to have to deal with because people think that there's real money involved as well as real power. And if it is their belief that they will be able to sue for hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars, they view that as progress for social justice, even if it doesn't slow down the global warming stuff, right? So you got to remember that. Even if they're wrong on the science, they think they're right in principle. Even if the global warming alarmists believe that they're not going to be able to prove the things that they say, if it isn't true but it rings true, to borrow from that recent Trump biography guy, uh, then they feel like it's good enough because they're going to use this money for development in the third world. This becomes a massive wealth transfer scheme from you and me to other parts of the world. And it's also a form of paying for indulgences back in the old Catholic Church in the medieval period. You know, you could pay for your sins. This is that on a global scale. This is paying money as an apology for how wealthy and prosperous America has become and trying to prop up the rest of the world with it. But it's ultimately doomed, I think, to to failure. Attorneys general from various states, you know, Schneiderman and others, Schneiderman's here in New York, they've thought about doing this. This is a movement that's going to continue on. It's going to be like reparations movement. Uh, The reparations movement in this country has also been talked about for decades and It'll get enough steam that you actually have to pay attention to it because it'll become a legal issue and then it'll get pushed back and then it'll get steam. But the governor is really upsetting me here. Why don't you want the global climate change? I don't know. It's really hard. You know, it's it's much better if you have like the Conan O'Brien show, the face, and you do the mouth because really that doesn't sound. He's a Conan. Here I am. You know, it doesn't really sound like Schwarzenegger at all. But because you can see his face, it sounds a little bit like it. I got to work on my Schwarzenegger. Because he's not really German in the, in the, he's not like, yeah, guten Tag. He, he's not in that realm at all. He's got, he's really got his own accent. He's really uh, almost like speaking his own, his own version of English in, in a way. The Schwarzenegger style. It's disappointing though to see this with the governor. Anyway, we're going to get into some uh, roll call coming up here in, in just a few minutes. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, at Buck Sexton. We'll be right back.
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. virus in the Democratic Party. You have to move on. If this is our messaging going oh, into 2020, I thought that it was time for them to back off right now. Right but, now. But, but, I don't but, think they're helping the party but, right but now. Her message is one. With but wait, me wait a too. second. <laughs> Things are getting testy on the view over this one. You know, the, the old pro-Hillary guard, they don't want to let it go, you know? I'm just going to say it. It's like boomers with the Rolling Stones. It's just getting weird now. They're, 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 they're no longer like rock stars that should be marrying 22-year-olds and doing all the stuff they're doing. I'm just saying, it's getting weird now. You know, people are like, oh, the Stones, and they're still going strong. I'm like, there's only so far nostalgia can really get you, folks, all right? And the same thing's true with the Clintons. There's a whole media group of boomers out there in particular who just the, the Clintons, they associate the Clintons with the America that they know. And and Hillary and Bill were going to make it all better. And the big mean Republicans and Ken Starr came after them and they just can't let it go. That's why Hillary can wander around just being terrible and saying all kinds of really unhelpful things. And I mean, unhelpful from the perspective of being a Democrat. Right. I, I mean, unhelpful for everyone. Republicans don't want to hear it, and Democrats don't need to hear it, because all it is is her whining about, what happened? Here's what she's been saying. His whole campaign, Make America Great Again, was looking backwards. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights. You don't like women, you know, getting jobs. You don't want to, you know, see that Indian American succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. So it was a symptom but it was also a cause i mean hillary's amazing you know she she can't even she can't, <laughs> she can't help herself but say that the reason that she couldn't win over the 63 million people who voted against her in the last election was because they're a bunch of uh, racist redneck hillbillies that's pretty much it doesn't really take much on her own plate by way of responsibility for any of this doesn't really have anything to uh, to add into the national conversation other than just to say that, you know, Trump is is a racist. But I'm actually hopeful, and I will say this, I am hopeful that Hillary is not going to go anywhere for quite a while. I would like her to be running around and used as a surrogate for uh, the Democrat Party as, mu- as much as is possible. And as much as is feasible, I would like to see Hillary Clinton running around just saying, you know, well, Trump is racist and just saying all kinds of uh, very derogatory and uh, disrespectful things about the electorate. Remember, we were uh, just talking before to Selena Zito about this. Democrats play in some of these states is going to have to be going more moderate. Democrats are going to have to run Lamb-like, for Connor Lamb, not like uh, Lamb-like candidates in some of these other congressional races. And that's going to mean that they need to clear the slate as much as possible of just the, the detritus of political careers past. You know, the, the, the leftovers of the Clintons. But it's just funny to see it because it's like the media doesn't get the message. You know, they still want to have... Uh, Clinton access, and they still want to have the favors of being in tight with the Clintons. 
And the fact that that's no longer something that's good for the left of the Democrat Party, the message is getting to them pretty slowly. They haven't yet totally given up on it. What's going to end up happening, though, and this, this takes me to the discussion we had last week about Netflix. What's going to happen is that when they start rolling out Obama as overall Democrat you know, stand in and Hillary as everyone can say, all right, we just need we need more Obama and less Hillary. And I think that that's going to be the way that this all plays out. It will only be when the Democrats have to stare down a midterm victory for Trump that they finally show a real willingness to back off of the Hillary Express. I still think there are some members of the media, and I mean big ones, I mean big names, who think Hillary 2020 would be a good idea. They think that's the only way to set this right. I mean, they are their insanity over how much they hate Trump is only matched by the delusion of how much they love Hillary and how viable they think she is politically. All right, I just wanted to throw that in there for a second. We're going to get into some roll call here, so stay with me. Well, it's been quite a day here in the Freedom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed what we've dived into together. I almost said doved into, but I think that's wrong. It's got to be dived. And since I'm a have divin, have been dived, I don't know, something like that. Dove. Yeah, we dove into together. I know. I'm just, it's late in the show, John. I'm tired. Uh, But speaking of which, I'm just kidding. Thank you for the assist. Speaking of which, uh, it's time for Roll Call. Hit it. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Wow. I like when the the bass drops. That's when all you at home are supposed to be like, oh, yeah. DJ Buck in the house. I better stop right now before you all turn this off. Okay. Uh, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, you can send an email to officialteambuck at gmail.com or facebook.com slash bucksexton. So, with that, my friends, here we have uh, Chuck, who is writing to Buck. He says the following, I heard your thoughts on Obama's Netflix show. Very concise, but really no surprise. How is that any different than his presidency? Well, Chuck, uh, he's not president anymore. But you're right. He is definitely or was and still is a media darling. And you make a fair point, sir. So thank you very much for that. James, next up in our roll call mailbox, he writes, Hi, Buck. Love the piece on the tariff. But why hasn't anyone mentioned that having a tariff in place might make companies wanting to buy, sell, and trade with the USA, come to the USA, and set up shop here and provide jobs and participate in our economy? James, very interesting point, right? If there is an advantage to producing equipment, materiel, whatever it may be, here in the US of A, then couldn't we have reverse... The reverse of offshoring. Couldn't we have the reverse of sending our jobs overseas? Overseas sends their jobs here. 
at some level. That's at least feasible. It's possible. One of the big problems in all this is the wage scale and, and wage expectations in this country versus some of the other places where a lot of production happens. Uh, I know I know a bit about this because Miss Molly works for a very large uh, retailer, and a lot of the places where different clothing brands get their stuff made are all over the world in places where the, the labor uh, is a lot cheaper. So that's something else. And we're never going to be able to match that. So for un, unskilled labor, uh, when you look at the different uh, wage rates in countries based on unskilled labor, you know that's when I think you get into a, a problem with expecting we're going to move a lot of the jobs here because people expect and need to be paid more here. Um, okay, next up we have uh, Jim. I was listening to your podcast about name changes, and you mentioned Obama's name change. Uh, I worked for a missionary outfit and talked to a man who brought two Muslims to faith in Christ. He said he gave them, as they requested, new Christian names and changed them before they were baptized into the faith. I understand this is common among Muslims who convert. Uh, didn't you say Obama changed his name from a Christian name to a Muslim one? P.S. My wife and I retired and are listen to you often now as I brought her to the team. But instead of the usual saying, good night, I'll see you in the morning after roll call, she has started saying, good night, shields high. You're pretty good with your words. So is there some way you could sort of uninstall what you've done? If not, don't sweat it. Shields high. Jim, thank you for the kind note. Uh, as to Obama, he, he, no, he was born... Uh, he was, in fact, born based on all the records, everything else we've seen, Barack Obama, but he was went by Barry. Uh, so he went by that as his preferred name for a long time. And during the period when he was living in Indonesia, uh, he went by the surname of, I believe, the man that his, wife, uh, that his mom was uh, dating at the time, Satoro, uh, or living with at the time, whatever the case may be. So Obama's biography is not top of mind these days. So there you have it. Uh, Next up here, where did it go? Oh, yes. This is from Trisha. She writes, I so do appreciate your calm discussions. Interesting you should mention, uh, but at the time of Trump's button comment, there was an uprising by hungry and thirsty people. Hmm. What? He said some people, I'm not sure where we're going here. Liberals need a dose of self-control. Gun control gives us dead children. Birth control gives us, okay, what? Guess the tragedy and murder depends which side of the womb you're on, Trisha. Trisha carried a lot of territory in this email, so I kind of gave you the abbreviated version. Thank you, Trisha. Maybe I should start reading these before I go on air, although I kind of like the -the off-the-cuff nature of, of having to address them as we go. Uh, occasionally I have to bleep out some words in my mind. And I've gotten good enough that I feel like very few people could tell that that's what I'm doing. This is from Mary. She writes, I'm a podcast listener, have been listening since mid-2017, having seen you on Fox, read you on Twitter, and heard you fill in Once Upon a Time for Rush Limbaugh. Your programs are excellent. The history podcasts are outstanding. Both are most informative and enlightening. Yes, I would even pay to get the Shields High podcasts. One thought about Kim Jong-un's interest in meeting President Trump. I think Kim's buying time and creating a distraction while he continues to supply Syria. 
Your mention of Assad's recent chemical attack on the Damascus Damascus suburbs helps me come to that conclusion. Your thoughts. Have a wonderful weekend and a blessed week. Mary. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Very kind of you. Uh, I do think that uh, Kim is most likely trying to buy time, but I'm not sure he will be able to buy time in the way that he is uh, hoping because of the strength of the sanctions that President Trump has put forth on North Korea, they are in a tougher spot than they have ever been in before economically, or at least since the famine in the 90s. And I I think that this, this could be a different outcome. I am hopeful that it could be a different outcome. Um, Next up here. Uh, John, he writes, hey, Buck, I've been listening to your show for about a year. Oh, sorry, this is from the Facebook inbox. And if you want to write to us there, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. John writes, hey, Buck, I've been listening to your show for about a year. You do a great job. But I had a thought that no one is seeming to consider. What if the meeting with Kim Jong-un is just a trap? An assassination attempt like the guy in Star Wars. It's a trap. You know what I'm talking about? When he's going to the, it's a trap. Uh, what if the meeting with Kim Jong-un is a trap, an assassination attempt set up by the North Korean leader and maybe Democrats, Clinton acolytes? To me, it doesn't seem far-fetched when it's a guy who assassinates his own family and people who are willing to make deals with enemies. Just a thought. Great show. Shields high. John, I wouldn't worry about our, our president in this situation and this uh, uh, possible or likely planned meeting with Kim Jong-un. It'll be in a mutually agreed upon place and... The consequences for North Korea of any such effort like you are describing here would be severe, uh, to say the least. And it would not get them anywhere except on the wrong side of an American broadside and perhaps a whole lot more than that. So I don't I don't don't think that's a concern you need to have. Secret Service has got it uh, squared away. And and I I know some Secret Service folks and they're very, very good at what they do. And I I don't worry about the president sitting down with another head of state. Here we go. Karen writes, congratulations on scoring Jeff Sessions. Your hard work is paying off. Well, thank you, Karen. And the folks down at DOJ actually really thought it was a good interview with Mr. Sessions. That's always nice. You know, the people that work for the boss reach out to me. They're like, hey, I thought that went really well, the Sessions interview. So I'm glad. We'll have him back at some point. You know, I can make some room for the attorney general here on my radio show, you know, time to time. I feel like he's got some important stuff to say. He is the most... uh, important law enforcement official in the country or the highest law enforcement official in the country so you know i make room for for excellent guests as well as guests that are at the cabinet level and above you know cabinet level and above we can fit you in here on the buck sexton show Uh, we try to avoid deputy under assistant secretary for who gives a crap you know what i mean so that's a that's an unwritten policy here on the show don next up here he writes buck love your show i usually agree with most of your points But comparing Netflix's Ozark to Breaking Bad is like calling both Bill Nye and Carl Sagan scientists. They were both engaging, but one was incredibly written and believably realistic, while the other, though sinfully entertaining, was rather poorly written and it was also ridiculously impossible. I'm sure you can tell which I preferred. As always, I loved hearing your take, but you were out to lunch on this one, and I had to call you out on it. Keep up the great work. You're still the best. Don. Don, I'm not really going to defend myself on this one too much because I think, or I was trying to say at least, that the genre is similar. So if you liked one, you'll like the other. 
I wasn't trying to say that they are almost equivalent in terms of greatness, right? It's sort of like if, if I were talking to you and I said, hey, I think you will like uh, porterhouse. If you'd never had meat before, and I'm like, I think you will like porterhouse steak. And oh, by the way, if you like, by the way, let's, let's take this back for a second. Ribeye, which is better than porterhouse. We take this back for a second. And then before that, I said to you, hold on, wait, if you like ribeye, you'll also probably like flank steak. I'm not saying they're the same. I'm just saying in my own way is being the human Pandora that I am, where I try to say, if you like this, you'll like this. I think they're similar enough. That all said, I think your analysis is correct. Ozark is uh, not nearly as plausible, not nearly as well-written, not as good a show, but you are comparing a Netflix show that's gotten very little press to what is arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, scripted television dramas of all time. So, you know, we got to keep it, keep it 100% here. Uh, but a fair a fair point made from Don. Uh, I got a lot of other movie recommendations in the inbox, but I will have to wait and hold those for next time because I am running out of time here. Please do, if you're listening to this show, uh, spread the podcast around. We love seeing the podcast numbers grow. And uh, also, do indeed uh, check out Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Follow me there, and we'll be sharing more information there. So that's going to close out the Freedom Hunt for today. Uh, We will have much more for you tomorrow and every day this week, as we always do. Until then, my friends, no matter what mayhem may find you, shields high.